For October 11th, 2009, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 119, Negative Capability. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. It is a lonely podcast because I, your host on the left coast, Matthew Rather, am joined only by Peter Fenzel. Ah, yes, but I have the strength of 10 men, and you have the strength (laughs) of 10 men. So it's like we have 20 men on the podcast, so it's a total sausage fest, Um, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) On Oktoberfest, no less, we have a sausage fest, which is appropriate. (laughs) Sausage, bratwurst, and beer. Um, We're going to toss it to a pre-recorded bit a little later with Mark Lee about... um, uh, about Comic-Con New York, because he was there all weekend, and you can see on overthinkingit.com uh, already there's posted some photos that he um, uh, that he took at Comic-Con New York, and then coming on Tuesday, uh, there's going to be an article about the Michael Jackson dance video game and the rehabilitation of Michael Jackson's image. Uh, that drops on Tuesday. So uh, in a little bit, we'll, uh, we'll uh, go to that uh, interview with Mark about Comic-Con, and uh, and That'll be great. But in the meantime, there's a question of the week, and there's only two of us. Uh, I was told I didn't know this because the public university I attend does not give me this day off. But uh, <laughs> tomorrow is Columbus Day. Or uh, tomorrow as we record it. Today, uh, if you are downloading the podcast on the first day that it's available, uh, is Columbus Day. Uh, Monday... October 11th, 2010, if you're in the United States, where we recognize such things, but increasingly don't. So, uh, in honor of Columbus Day, Pete, what already discovered land would you like to rediscover (laughs) and get all the credit for? Oh, man. I thought about this a lot because I realized there's only two of us, so we got to pull our weight. And I kept coming back to this one place that for me, since I was a child, has had this like mythic quality. And I feel like it, this mythic quality is not sort of adequately uh, realized and actualized in the world uh, out there, uh, people talking. Uh, and I would have to say that I would want to discover the Poconos. <laughs> are, you familiar, are you familiar with the Poconos, Matt? Rather, not as much as uh, I should be. Will you fill me in, Pete? <laughs> sure, sure. So the Poconos is a mountain, a mountainous area uh, full of sort of resorts and, and lakes that's located mostly in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania and uh, northwestern New Jersey. And uh, I know it primarily as one of those things, along with prescription drug plans and rascals, that was advertised very heavily on The Price Is Right when I was growing up, when I was a child, and, and I would stay home from like, sick and watch The Price Is Right. The beautiful Poconos? Oh, definitely. Like, beautiful Mount Airy Lodge was a big one. They had a wonderful song. All you have to bring is your love of everything. Beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. And, uh, which, actually, if anybody. excludes a lot of people from their clientele, don't you think? Because, like, <laughs> who really has a, lo- a love of everything? Well, exactly. And, the, and it's like, it's a picture of, like, a video of, like, middle aged people jumping across rocks and, like, playing tennis. And, because this is the 80s at this point, and it's, like, not acceptable to say that, like, you can take your mistress here. Uh, <laughs> or, like, it yeah. wouldn't be acceptable to day either uh or like you as like an older couple with empty nesters or you as like a bachelor and you're like your uh your your woman friend it like wasn't acceptable at the time to be like this is a place where you can go that none of your friends know about or that like you aren't gonna run anybody you know don't you see those ads on the internet for like discreet you know affair services i mean i guess maybe (laughs) i maybe i hang out in very shady parts of the internet but there are definitely (laughs) there are definitely display ads for uh you know um Oh, and there's another one for Sugar Daddies that was written about in the New York Times that I read called Seeking Arrangement. I, I, mm. I mean, you know, I don't know. 
Well, the thing about the Poconos is that it's like this – it feels very remote when you're driving through it, but it's very, very close to a number of intensely, densely populated areas. I mean, New Jersey is the most densely populated state in America by a huge margin, right? It's like you know comparable to China at least on like the, the number of people that pack into New Jersey. Uh, and the Poconos is this like stretch kind of – not really of no man's land, but just like it, it sort of ceases. It doesn't um, achieve that kind of like idyllic natural quality because it, it, it just sort of feels like this this um, this anti-space that, that exists that sort of like aspires to a kind of wilderness but, but doesn't really achieve it because it's been like a resort retreat for more than 100 years uh, to the point where it's like not really exciting all that much. I think I think the 20s was like its heyday. Uh, but it's like I'd love to rediscover the Poconos and set it up as something that like really captivates the imagination because like, you know, the, you go the other direction from New York City to the resort areas like, you know, the Hamptons and like, you know, the Long Island and stuff like that and, and there's like all this mythology that's connected to them like you could have very easily written the great gatsby about the poconos it would have been much different but uh done, yeah you could have done <laughs> sex in the city episodes where they go to the poconos <laughs> i mean for all i know one of them exists but it's this bizarre i mean like because i think in america we have this division between wilderness areas and populated areas sure um and and i think and of course there's then this idea of like country areas right which are a combination of wilderness areas and populated areas where people kind of like work hard and, and are salt of the earth folk but up here in especially in Massachusetts where I live, there's like the towns and like the woods, right? Uh, and, and this is an area of the woods that has always captured my imagination. And it, what it needs is it needs a great poet. Like it needs like, like Maine has Stephen King uh, and like, and like uh, Long Island has uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Like somebody needs to be the bard of the Poconos and like create that space in our imaginations again because the first time they did it, they didn't quite do it right. So, uh, so that, or at least they didn't do it for long enough because only our great-grandparents remember it. Um, but that, that is what I would say. I would say I would want to rediscover the Poconos, uh, and I think you should rediscover the Poconos, the people that you care about. No, <laughs> like, go to beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. All, yeah, all you have um, to bring is your love of everything. <laughs> exactly. If your you have that, of, fine. Your, your love of serial killers and, and your <laughs> love of, you know, our inexorable march toward the, the grave. It sounds, it sounds like uh, – well, everything. It sounds like it's something out of the golden child, right? <laughs> it's like in order, in order to get the knife, all you have to bring is your love of everything. <laughs> and you have to go to the Tibetan Plateau with, with, Eddie, with Eddie Murphy. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's something about it that, that we'll figure out gradually as we get older, I think. And as like, as like the sea swallows up New York City and people flee to the Poconos in order to rebuild civilization because uh, of the melting ice caps, I think that'll be a time to really, um, to really figure out what that whole place is about. But I don't know. What, what about you, Matt? I mean, you should ask this question of yourself because you need to remove the beam from your own eye. I absolutely would. Uh, <laughs> here, here, here's what it is. The land that I would like to rediscover uh, is Disneyland. <laughs> I, like, like find it with all the Disney people already there. Oh yeah, like, absolutely. It's actually, yeah. it's actually like colonizing a land where indigenous people live, except that the people are very often like country critters and anthropomorphized animals and you know things like this. I would like to discover Disneyland as a uh, as a natural habitat, as a kind of utopia. Because here's the thing about Disneyland, uh, I think, um, yeah. it's perfect. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know they've uh, they've looked into the problems of having people in a small space together and they've solved them all you know mm-hmm. those people get get amused they get fed you know yep. they get walked around they get they never connected. die Yep. Yeah, exactly. Because right. <laughs> you're not allowed to die in Disneyland, right? No, like no they, one dies they, in Disneyland. They, yeah. they have to cart you off the premises if you're dying. I think that's a rule, right? Or something I like heard that. that. Yeah. 
might be apocryphal. But anyway, continue. Well, I mean, unless on a ride or something like that. I don't know. I'm sure someone can, <laughs> I'm sure someone can Google something where someone had a heart attack. In fact, you know what I think there was on the California Adventure big uh, rock and roller coaster. Oh, no, that's, uh, that's something else. But on the California Adventure, ah, California Screamin' roller coaster. Um, I think uh, two trains collided and, and some people died tragically. But uh, oh no, well, that's yeah, awful. Yeah, no, that's that's awful. Why on earth would I bring? You need to prevent that from happening. If only you discovered it, that never would have yeah. happened. Those people would, would still be alive. I, yeah, I absolutely would have never uh, let that happen. And so, um, you know, not only does the the uh, original European discoverer of America not get any credit, the indigenous people of America, uh, the let's say the then indigenous people of America, uh, don't get any credit. So we, um, you know, I, I would like the same thing to uh, to happen with Disneyland. You know, they uh, yeah. like they've done research on absolutely from the, the the colors that things are painted to the most um, seemingly efficient way to stand in line. I mean, a line <laughs> is a line; it takes as long as it takes. But uh, you know, the right. the ride only pulls people. Um, at- That's what I say to all the ladies: is that it takes as long. <laughs> It takes as long as it takes, but it only pulls people. Uh, no, never it, uh, mind. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> the ride only pulls people at a certain rate, you know? Exactly, but exactly. They've, they've researched your perception of waiting in a line, and it turns, it turns out that that kind of single track with a lot of switchbacks uh, gives mm. the, the lowest perceived time uh, of waiting in line because huh. you're always kind of edging forward a little, so it seems right, like you're always right, right. active. Rather than, I mean, I don't know what they, what else they could do. I, I, you know, have you in pens or have a great channel of people or something like that. Um, you know, yeah. they've solved they've solved all the problems at Disneyland. Yeah. It's actually they kind can of jump like, you in a- yeah, go ahead. It's kind of like Starbucks in that sense, right? <laughs> you walk into a Starbucks and you realize that, like, it, for the the formula for creating a totally pleasant environment with totally passable, uh, you know, refreshment and uh, a place to hang out for a little while, um, that code has been cracked, and it's called Starbucks. You know, mm. and it's it's kind of depressing because you you want to support local businesses, you want to you know I don't know invest in your local economy and you and and all the benefits that. that come along with that uh, the benefits of of community and of uh you know local prosperity and and things like this but you know what they're none of them any damn good and starbucks Mm -hmm. is not good but it's fine you know and Mm -hmm. i feel much the same way about disneyland you know it's not great but it's fine and uh and i would i and i wish more of the world were fine honestly yeah I think I think that um, people maybe maybe historians in the future will look back on this time period as the age of designed because I mean the thing that I think about when I hear those two recommendations from you is that that designed spaces right spaces that have been sort of virtuosically if that's a word designed like designed extremely well uh, it, it works on so many different levels and I was thinking about this in the context of some of our discussions last week that we had about um, social networks and and, uh, and the sort of way that you create technological spaces uh, and and really the disciplines of of engineering and sort of technological innovation and design really seem to have converged these days and it it's something that you see like you see part of it coming out of the 60s and you see the sort of uh, the post-war move to make things not just functional but like sort of feel right and look right and be efficient, but it really seems to be exploding today across a whole bunch of different avenues of life. Uh, and I think that's, that's really interesting, that, that you can optimize the space, 
right, for, for specific purposes that have to do with the experience of the space, as well as for the function, the express function that it serves. Um, that this isn't the same thing as making a car that runs as far on the same amount of gasoline. The idea of somebody staying on a line to the point where they can't perceive the passage of time as arduously. Like, that's, that's a really kind of, when you think about that in the context of the technological achievements of generations past, that's kind of sounds like witchcraft, right? Like it's kind of sounds like something that ought not to be possible, and yet it is possible, and people do it, and it just seems like a really phenomenal uh, step up in this sort of personal technology, the way that human beings interact with spaces and things. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, there's going to be a, an entry in the history books for the iPod, and our great grandchildren um, are going to have to. Uh, uh, remember and memorize like Steve Jobs' name, yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, because that's how because I mean, that's how they'll tell the story. This is like this is this is when the iPod came out and it was a huge deal, right? They'll they'll explain the whole personal computing age by saying like Apple made computers, but then Microsoft made computers, and then I, Apple made iPods, and then Google took over the earth. And, you know, and it's like that's going to be like the four things you need to remember, yeah. Uh, or something. Well, sure. and except I mean, then it'll be Apple's Baidu, a- and then they'll talk about the war that's going to happen. I mean, I, I, I don't know anything. I don't Apple's know. Was a great. <laughs> 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 Apple's a great example, actually, because these these kind of designed experience uh, experiences attain a, a, you know statuses as status symbols. You know? Yeah, and the, uh, and I don't want I don't want to talk about Apple too much. No, be, no, but no, I do, absolutely, yeah. let's, abso- let's absolutely not. But um, but here's what I do want to talk about, uh, and I think we're going to come back to this after we go uh, to the Comic Con um, the to the Comic Con uh, business, uh, yeah. and when we come back, because um, I think we're going to talk about. Uh, when you optimize something, you optimize you optimize for a particular trait, you know. Yes. Or you optimize for a balance uh, a balance of traits, yeah. in which case everything is a trade off. But uh, yeah, well, the- yeah, because generally speaking, for one variable you can maximize it, but for multiple variables, the best you can do is to optimize it. Right. And that's something that people don't really know. But we can talk more about that uh, after sure. the. But that yeah. the um, the idea uh, of these design spaces is that they're not they're not sort of altruistic. You know, both Disneyland mm-hmm. and Starbucks are designed as design spaces, and those are two great examples. Uh, are designed to separate you from your money in short order. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, yeah, and it, let me tell you, Disneyland does it brilliantly. I, can you tell I went to Disneyland this summer? I went, you know, I went recently, and so I have a lot of uh, kind of Disneyland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By having, you know, by having a food cart, you know, with a uh, salty snack for $12 or something like that. Yeah. Every, <laughs> you know what I mean? Every 150 yep. yards. Um, yep. Or, you know, merchandise or, or things like this. Or, you know, the, the idea of, while well, you're still kind of high off the ride. Uh, while you're coming down from that, um, in that sort of post, in that kind of uh, uh, roller factory period, yeah. <laughs> if you will, uh, showing you the picture of yourself at the height of kind of uh, orgasmic bliss, enjoying the ride, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the the automatic picture that was taken, and then selling that to you for 1995 or, or something like that. These these things are brilliant. They're they're masterstrokes of um, separating you uh, you from your money, so that these we're we're moving towards. Um, and you know we are by far not the first to say this, but we're moving towards um, uh, an area of kind of private designed spaces uh, that are commercial rather than a commons uh, that is ugly but that belongs to everybody. Right, 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 right. right. Well, um, speaking of uh, oh, I can't do a segue. <laughs> not speaking of ugly. Not speaking of belongs to to everybody. Uh, speaking Speak- of speaking, of, yeah. Speaking of comic places, yeah. okay. I was about to say. Speaking of commercialism, 
Oh, I think the, the COM is the route we need to go to right now. Yeah, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to take a break and be right back after this exciting musical bumper with an interview uh, with Mark Lee from Comic Con. Welcome back. We're here with Mark Lee. Mark, we are in a time warp. You are not on the regular Overthinking It podcast. Pow! Those that was those, yeah. Those those effects are as good as effects from ILM. Yeah. Oh, Thanks. teaser, teaser for what's uh, what's coming up. No, but we're recording a special uh, supplement um, that we are going to roll into the regular podcast because you have been at New York Comic Con for this last yes. weekend. That's right, Mister Rather. I spent the weekend at New York City Comic Con. Uh, that's that's really terrible. You know, we do that. We break out that voice every once in a while and sort of to to evoke the stereotypical nerd. But it's neither particularly accurate nor is it really what we're about, right? We're not making fun of that. We are from that. Yeah, we're of that. I mean, that's it's us. You know what I mean? Uh, comic book guy, Simwa. Right. And and honestly, do we – that voice – we should talk about this for a second. That voice actually I think mostly comes from uh, the babysitter character from South Park, doesn't it? That sort of heavy <laughs> sound. Because from sure. her heavy yeah, dental work, it's, it's kind of an, an amalgam of that and of comic book guy, and uh, yeah, but it is. I guess I guess so. She's the one who says in the movie, isn't she? I'm going to go listen to my Britney Spears record. Yes, yes, the Britney Spears record. Oh, that's, <laughs> no, it doesn't get old, actually. So here, actually, so it, it does get old. So I'm going to stop. Uh, but it's actually you mentioned that you know we are from that cloth. But at the same time, when, he, when I look at the Comic-Con crowd, or actually when I am at Comic-Con, this was probably your feeling last year as well, too, was that you feel actually you're an outsider looking in. Well, I do. And I think that that's – I mean I, I wouldn't say that we're journalists uh, because we're not, and so it would be a lie <laughs> if I said that. What? I had a press pass. That little thing that they gave me said press on it. <laughs> I know. And it's that, the same thing. You know, I lived on the East Coast. I had one. And I, I, I went with you last year, and it was, it was cool. Um, but uh, we don't – you know, we're, we're enthusiasts for pop culture, but I think the whole idea of overthinking is, is kind of holding things at a remove um, and, and considering them critically. Or, you, you know, fandom seems to me to be a, a fundamentally different thing than overthinking mm-hmm. uh, fandom per se seems to be a, a fundamentally different right. thing because um, we, we don't accept things uncritically, which is not to say that fans – I don't know. I'm spinning my wheels here because it's not to say that fans uh, accept things uncritically. Uh, in fact, the hardcore fans are some of the heaviest critics of a lot of uh, pop culture products. But we um, – Oh, we have to uh, what? We have to keep our we have to keep our objectivity in a sense because we're we're not looking for we're looking for a different order of enjoyment. We're not we're not looking to take pleasure in the thing as such. We're we're looking to to take pleasure in uh, in a way our own appreciation of the thing, which sounds awfully <laughs> masturbatory when you when you put it that way. Um, hey, was it how was it uh, how was it compared with last year? I mean, last year you described the experience as quote drinking from the pop culture fire hose. Was it yeah. uh, was it similar? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, I, I sort of went into there on Friday evening um, thinking, oh, I've been here before. I know sort of know what the drill is. You know, I'm a seasoned veteran now. Um, and, but that feeling quickly faded within about five or ten minutes. Ten minutes of hitting the floor and being surrounded by uh, overstimulation of every sort. Right? Um, there was an intense video game booth. 
going on. There was, of course, the, the incredibly outlandish co- uh, costumes there. You know, you walk down sort of in the, the, the what I always say is the, the heart of the show is still about comics. And you walk down onto the floor there and there's just row and after row after row of comics and comic book vendor there. You're just, your senses are just totally assaulted. And after, um, after drinking, after taking all that in, you really do feel, you feel exhausted. It's like, you know, you you just imagine sort of on your day to day uh, life as you, you know, ride the, the ride the subway or commute to work in a car and you you sit in an office and you come home and you watch some TV and you first surf the internet, you know, you consume that, that's sort of a normal amount of pop culture consumption for our daily lives. And granted that has been increasing with our increasingly uh, much more digitized and and gadget and, and internetified world. But that's a fraction of what you consume in just in an afternoon spent at Comic-Con. Sure. I don't know if, if that was your sort of thoughts from last year as well, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it's funny. The, so much of the material there was, um, was so specialized that I felt like it, mm-hmm. it almost wasn't available for, for entertainment value. It was kind of there for connoisseurship value. Such as? Uh, oh, some of the niche comics stuff that I, you mm-hmm. know, that I don't get into it. My, my knowledge of comics is, uh, is abysmal actually, and is not nearly, you know, where some of our writers are. Um, right. And again, so that, that knowledge of all those comics, and if you're an avid comic reader and the comic con really is a place for you, even though so much of the show is about other things like video games and movies and that sort of thing. Well, it's become that. I mean, this is a legacy of, uh. This is the legacy of Hollywood, you know, of kind of mainstream entertainment discovering the the power of this audience mm-hmm. um, who are, you know, say what you want about us geeks. We know how to use the Internet, you know, and we uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, do we <laughs> we also, you know, and we're also convinced in in our right to, like, shout our opinion to everybody. You know, so we make websites like overthinking it, <laughs> you know, where we where we tell people what we think of things. Uh, so. Uh, you know, there are kind of more a variety of, of entertainment products, though, you know, comic writers are still there and there are comic uh, booths and there are, um, you know, indie publishers and things like this. Mm-hmm. That That is still there. I mean, I don't think, um, yeah, I don't think I, the presence of, of, you know, Terminator Salvation at the con last year when, when we were there, I don't think that eclipsed the... Um, you know, the fact that there was still a lot of very specialist uh, geekery on display, right? Right, yeah. And actually, on the note of the independent comic artists, I do want to do a quick shout out to uh, one of my coworkers' friends who was an artist at the con, and I got to meet very briefly. Uh, his name is Philip Sablick, and he writes for Top Cow Comics. And um, he has a, a, a new comic out there called, uh, what's it called? I'm blanking on the name, but we'll put it in the, in the show notes. But uh, Philip Sablick, Top Cal Comics. Uh, I got to meet an honest-to-God independent comic book writer and uh, a very nice guy, obviously. But what was interesting about that interaction is before I got to talk to him, I was waiting in line, sort of a small meet-and-greet kind of meet-and-greet booth type of thing. And um, someone had – an independent artist had just brought her portfolio to you know basically to show it to this uh, independent comic book uh, uh, you know these these so somewhat more established comic book artists, and he was just going over her inkings and her drawings and things like that, and was trying to get some feedback from from a, a professional thing there. So that sort of interaction right there, uh, again, sort of speaks to what the, what the Comic Con really and, and truly is about, and that's something that I can't fully appreciate or participate in. Yeah, I, I think there are also like a lot of the publishers have sort of critique sessions, or also kind of like job interview sessions there, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's there's it's it's a you know the, for, there's a professional side of that. 
which is beyond sort of the fandom. It's about the actual production of comics and that the, the work that goes into that. Yeah. Um, so going back to what you said earlier about Hollywood paying attention to this and making, sure. you know, Comic-Con this larger than comics convention, you know, tying in video games and movies and that sort of thing. That definitely was the case that we saw last year when the con was in February and allow the studios to tee up and do a lot of hype for upcoming movies for this, I guess, the early summer slash summer right. uh, season, you know right? I had forgotten that. Of course, I had moved to L.A. by, by this time last year. So mm-hmm. we uh, so it must have been earlier and it was in February. Yeah. And so now what are they teeing up their Oscar hits? No, nothing. Right. Nothing. Exactly. Right. So I was expecting like a, a Tron Tron legacy big promo type of thing like sure. it's october right now the movie's going to come in december this is the time to whip the geeks up into a fever pitch and do like a special 10 minute sneak preview uh of it and get the you know the everyone blogging about it so let's talk about last year for a second right um remember the hype over watchmen the watchmen 10 minute preview sure. and the terminator salvation sneak preview yep. and there was also we'll get to the other ones in a second but let's we talk saw, about watch well right. i mean we saw all of those oh yeah okay we'll get to the other ones in a second sure and we were like frothing at the mouth over the Watchmen thing. I mean, there's, you know, the hype to that is maybe a little bit more than for Tron, but it's certainly on the same level. And definitely the studios are trying very hard at sort of the same magnitude to whip up hype for that. And we were just salivating over it. And, you know, we wrote our preview, our, our you know, first impressions of it. Um, that was like one of the hundreds, if not thousands of blog articles that got posted about that. And then it did a really, really effective job of, um, you know, of, of getting the word out. For that particular thing, Terminator Salvation. Similarly, um, it's, uh, it's with much irony that we look back and think about how excited we were about getting that Terminator sneak peek and seeing Mick G and giving him the benefit of the doubt, saying that oh, you know, he seems like a reasonable he guy. Seem like a reasonable guy at the uh, at the, you know. Look, I think that I think the, <laughs> the problems with Terminal, Terminator Salvation weren't. There were more problems with the, the how the production was conceived and how the kind of the history of it played out with Sam Worthington and then Christian Bale coming on. Uh, yeah, and Christian Bale actually, signing on late and demanding rewrites. Basically, it's a totally strip the story and make him uh, the, the bigger the main character. Right, and the you know the fact that there were these uh, these two different stories kind of competing for what was this uh, you know competing for what the movie was about. But uh, honestly, McGee seemed like well you know it's always the serial killers always seem like uh, you know quiet nice people they. <laughs> I never, I never are, are you saying that McGee is like a serial killer? I, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that McGee is like a serial killer. Uh, <laughs> I am not saying that McGee has several victims tied up in his basement. So I don't know who is starting the rumors. I'm, that. I'm not, we're not saying that McGee should be put away for life and prevented from doing additional horrible crimes. We're not saying that. No, we're, we're, not, just, uh, we're, we're not saying that <laughs> McGee should be put away for life. By any means, but the uh, you know, but that's the soundbite that they're going to use when the press covers this uh, <laughs> when the press covers this podcast as they're as they're bound to. Um, yeah, it was such a it was such a big deal. We were going crazy in the thing. Also, the uh, the um, what was it? Friday the Thirteenth, right? Yeah, that, that was gross. That was terrible. Yeah, but and, people and were Mark, people uh, were worked up over that. No, though. People were working up over that. Mark, I I think that was tame compared with some of the torture porn that that gets you know uh, put out there these days. Uh, I, I haven't seen Saw. I still I haven't seen any of the Saw movies. I don't plan on it. And if that's the case, then, ugh, like I can't even imagine. I can't. What, well, yeah. I mean, so. I look. I can't do it. It's uh, oh. I leave it to Jordan. Um, to watch all the horror movies. <laughs> hey, He's very hey, good has, at it. Has who has anybody on the overthinking staff seen Human Centipede? We've talked about it a lot. 
but I don't know if any of us have actually worked up the courage to see it. I, I'd look to Jordan first. Yeah, I, so I'm putting that out also to our readers as well. But speak, just a quick aside on Human Centipede, I, I put out on Twitter a call for suggestions for costumes for Comic-Con. And the winner, hands down by far, was, of course, uh, someone suggesting a Human Centipede costume. Um, my, my thought about that was I wouldn't put that past the Comic-Con crowd. Like I, I, I was sort of going in there expecting to see a group of people, um, at least for a little bit, to sort of you know be parading around like that, not in a full-on sort of uh, you know the, the NC-17 you know rated uh, explicit version of it, but some sort of you know costume approximation thereof. Thankfully, I didn't run across anything like that. So, human centipede costume, the idea is still out there. You guys want to give it a shot for Halloween? Uh, be my guest. Ha. Huh. But uh, anyway, getting back to the sort of the movie previews and Comic-Con and sort of thing. Also reminiscing back to last year, we it's, it's easy to forget. I think they showed like a solid 45 minutes or so of Pixar's Up. Yeah. Which I don't think any yeah, of us exactly. did. Did any of us even go see it last year? It was sort of like, oh, what is this? I don't understand this Pixar movie about this old guy in balloons. Like this isn't ugh, what? Why would I go here? We I also, wanted, we'd been I sitting in that hall for, for a long time. I think our butts were tired and we wanted to, you know, at least see some of uh, some of what was going on on the show floor. That's a very good point. But sort of, again, the irony of it, right, that we were all worked up over Watchmen and Terminator Salvation, both of which fizzled to differing degrees. But the movie that really wound up, you know, captured the imagination of overthinking a crowd wound up being the one that we didn't see. Right. So shame on us. We did a bad job. They should just revoke our press pass and react uh, retroactively uh, charge us 40 bucks for the for the day. No, I mean, I think no, 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 I'm I'm being a phenomenon, I think, of of the way movies are marketed at the moment, which is that. There, there are sort of two stages. I mean, there's the, there's the hype stage. It's, you know, it's almost like two different sports playing the kind of the rumors and the hype and the, you know, leaks and the things like this game versus playing the uh, watching a movie and seeing whether it's actually a kind of worthwhile artistic product or not. Uh, so that, most of that's just the, the you're basically talking about sort of the tentpole game, right? Just the, the onslaught, the, the mass media marketing onslaught. That the major studios do sure and there's there's a kind of symbiotic relationship between that and the um uh between that and the kind of um fan blog phenomenon i mean ain't it cool being i guess the the prime example uh, mm-hmm. probably the first i think um but also you know what slash film and you know originally cinematical and and right right like- and so actually so it's it's worth mentioning sort of in the in the world of comic cons that there was a notable failure of this, right? With Scott Pilgrim versus the world was heavily promoted at Comic-Con in San Diego. Uh, the the Comic-Con, right? San Diego Comic-Con, which is in June or July or so. Yeah. Uh, wall-to-wall coverage. And um, I'm, I sort of obsessively read Slash Film and um, I'm sure many of our readers and listeners read Slash Film and other blogs of that ilk um, and thought that Scott Pilgrim versus the world was, uh, you know, this huge worldwide phenomenon that people were, were screaming for. And it turns out that it just totally bombs at the box office, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, uh, yes, it did uh, relative to expectations. That's that's definitely for sure. I mean, I think this is a movie that's going to have some sort of life uh, in a- after its theatrical release in in other media, but uh, but yeah, I guess, you know, I guess so. And it, it didn't. It wasn't helped, kind of coming out against the Expendables, right? Yeah, the counter programming against that that was that was weird, but that's a whole other 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 topic. Um, they were, for what it's worth, they were 
there was some significant uh, advertisement for the Scott Pilgrim DVD, which is coming out in, I think, early November or so. So they are they are obviously keenly aware that that's where they're going to recoup their money and investment in that. And um, I mean, the, rightfully so. Right. I mean, that's the kind of movie that will reward repeat viewings and the kind that geeks like ourselves will run out and buy on DVD for Christmas gifts and that sort of thing. Um, so I guess it, uh, let's I want to talk about the other thing. Uh, I've got uh, some things that are coming up on the site later uh, this Tuesday. I'm going to do a piece specifically about a Michael Jackson dance video game. Um, which, if you saw the pictures, Matt, I don't know if you saw the picture of the dancing Wario. Yeah, I did. Wario dancing the mic. That was priceless. That was. But I've got something even even sort of you know more the, the noteworthy and um, uh, sort of worthy of our analysis I'm and think about. I'm a Wario. <laughs> I'm a bad. I'm a bad. You know it. You know. Princess it. Princess Peach is not my lover. She's just <laughs> a girl who thinks that I am the one. The kid is uh, not my son. But the uh, the toadstool is uh, not my son. <laughs> yes so there's that which i have some video of that i've got some video as well to tease us a little bit it's a really truly bizarre sight to see four small children dancing to michael jackson in a video game and it speaks a lot to celebrity remembrance and how uh legacy changes um after death for michael jackson but that's i'm gonna sure. uh, that, that's gonna drop on the site on tuesday i don't want to i don't want to um, to steal my own thunder too much so what i want to talk about was uh was one sort of notable piece of pop culture that I consumed while at New York Comic Con. Since there was no big, you know, pre- Hollywood preview screenings there, I uh, saw what was interesting on, on the screening schedule, and I found this one is an ILM, a documentary produced by Encore, the premium movie channel about Industrial Light and Magic, the special effects house, obviously the George Lucas created for Star Wars and its legacy. So I guess um, what was Star Wars' anniversary, uh, so uh, equivalent to that, what, 25, 35 years? Someone do the math. Some and, anniversary. And, and have you heard, Mark, that these they're going to do 3D conversions of all the Star Wars movies? And- yeah, yeah, that's a, uh, we, we, I think we talked about it on, on an open thread, um, but that's a whole other conversation for another thing. And, way behind on overthinking which, uh, comments. I have like 200 comments in my Google Reader because I um oh because I'm just busy at school at the moment. Well, did you, that, did you did you know, listeners, that you can subscribe to? Not only do we have email subscriptions to comment threads that you like uh, working now, but you also can subscribe to comments in uh, Google Reader. If you if on any page you click the your browser should have a little RSS icon in the in the title bar. Uh, one of the options, in addition to uh, the main site feed and the podcasts, uh, one of the options is to subscribe to uh, all the comments and you'll get just the fire hose of overthinking and comments. Yeah. And there's a, a, by the way, a fantastic comment discussion going on about the princess bride article that we collaborated on, which uh, I am, it just, it, it makes my day when I see that sort of the, the that conversation take on a life of its own there well, it's uh, because we, you know, the, the site was built around conversation. I mean, the conversation among the writers who are all friends and, and to see that circle of friends expand is awesome. Yeah, totally. Uh, but getting back to ILM, and, and, and Comic-Con. So this, this documentary came out. It's going to premiere in, uh, in, on Encore sometime in November, I think. But this is basically the sneak preview for Comic-Con goers and, and press, you know, the important press such as myself to, uh, you know, blog and podcast about it to build the buzz. So if you've got Encore, you should check out the programming. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well, too, when this, when this goes. It's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting if you've... If you've sort of been a Star Wars fanboy like myself over the years, you've probably heard a lot of this as, as well, but it still was an interesting watch, and they've got some good interviews with 
people that I'll allude to in, in a second that makes it certainly makes it worth watching. Uh, Robin Williams in particular was hilarious in this. Um, but going back a little bit into sort of why I, I saw this, this is a little bit of a sort of a personal note for me. Um, one of the one of the things that turned me on to science fiction and pop culture in general was the process of special effects. Matt, I don't know if you remember the Discovery Channel show Movie Magic from back in the day. I think uh, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Do you remember this? Well, no. You know what? I don't, but I, I have a similar story. But you tell yours first. Yeah, it was uh, – this was sometime when I was in middle school. I discovered this weekly show called Movie Magic. And basically it's like this is how they make special effects. And they showed the green screens and the miniatures and how they did things in slow motion. And I was just fascinated. I, I mean and this was back when the green screens were blue. Yeah, blue screen, right, right. But before digital, it was definitely before digital. They're talking about late late eighties, uh, early nineties. That was actually, you know, sort of, you know, as as Terminator Two really broke a lot of barriers with the, with the computer animation. That was, you know, one of the things that they featured on there as well, too. But I was just blown away by this and thought that this is sort of like the the height, a real uh, incredible piece. That's uh, it, it was it was the height of creativity and problem solving and art in some ways. So it fuses all together. And it's like, how do you create something out of nothing, literally? Or how do you create impossible worlds that um, only exist in someone's imagination and then present on film as something that is real and believable? That, to me, was like the height of artistry and technology. Um, and so from there, that sort of uh, you know, uh, sparked my lifelong interest in, in science fiction and special effects, which is why I was really looking forward to this documentary. So, Matt, you had some similar uh, experience as well? Yeah, I did. You know what? It wasn't on, on uh, television, but I grew up in Los Angeles, and so we had Universal Studios Hollywood right here. Mm, mm. And so I was always, you know, going there, uh, you know, once a summer or something like that with my family, and they always had some kind of updated thing about uh, uh, where they showed you, you know, model photography or things like this, or... or uh, uh, sound effects or, or stuff stuff like this, and and you know it being Los Angeles, you get the you get the feeling of oh you're being right in it, you know, and mm-hmm. as, you, as you ride the trams around, you know, you go in and out of the sound stages where they're uh, shooting I don't know films and television st- shows and stuff like that. Um, you know, you were on the Sony lot when you visited Los Angeles, right? Yeah, yeah. And you saw the you saw plaques on the sides of the sound stages, right, where it was like you know I don't know, you know, Road to Cabo was filmed here or something like that. I think so. I, I always saw a very slim sliver of the of the Sony lot, which is outside this movie theater where America's Got Talent uh, reality actors came for a, a a red carpet thing. But let's not talk about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, you get the you get the sense of 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 being right in it. And yeah, no, I was super uh, super excited. And I I uh, also. You know, I don't know. I I also sort of discovered Cenefx magazine and and uh, and stuff like this. But yeah, so okay, so then this is a very personal uh, thing. This is your connection to the movies in in some way mm-hmm. or a very early memory. So when you go into this ILM uh, documentary, they're the ones who pioneer pioneered a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah, and you know, and I, I've heard a lot of the story before as well. Again, you know, from watching Movie Magic a million times over back in the day, and uh, you know, all the the, the Star Wars, you know, the, the the special features DVDs that come with all, the special features DVDs that come with all the movies these days. You know, I've seen a lot of this before. So what I was really interested actually in was its take on some of the more, I guess, for lack of a better word, controversial aspects and what have they done specifically, like this, you know, the how the the game changing nature of CGI. And how it's sort of it's fundamentally changing the nature of movie making. Sure. Um, how they internally, how they deal with Episode One, the original Star Wars trilogy, the roundly criticized, you know, original. I mean, sorry, the new Star Wars trilogy 
and yeah, but, uh, this but, sort of and 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 lastly this sort of this this general concept there being quote-unquote bad cgi out there and like you know is this cheapening movies in some ways well sure there is bad cgi i mean there's you know there's bad everything but isn't the problem with with episode one a problem of of uh storytelling i mean just at the at the level of conception and not at the level of uh uh not at the level of uh, definitely execution for the most part, yes. But one of the interesting things that the, the documentary revealed was sort of George Lucas, um, I think, seemed like wanting to push the envelope solely for the sake of pushing the envelope. And you can think about a lot of the CGI, the wide CGI shots of Naboo and, you know, just how intricate and sort of, for lack of a better word, fake that a lot of that, a lot of that actually felt like, right? Sure. I, I mean, I, to me, it harkened back to a lot of... I don't know. Have you watched the original trilogy? I mean, have you watched episodes four through six recently? Because it's it's uh, some of the model photography in that looks fake now. Uh, you, you think you so? Yeah. Like, like, what, what, oh, sure. Like, it looks like model photography. You know, you can see. I mean, you can see it now. We've all become. Every one of us has become like really sophisticated at uh, at at piecing this stuff out. Some of them, yes. I would say, especially like the the snow scenes in Empire Strikes Back, right? With, especially with the uh, the Tauntaun. Right, the, the stop the stop motion jerky tauntaun. Sure, um, but then you compare that to the the model photography from re- the battle space battle scenes in Return of the Jedi, or or Empire Strikes Back with the, you know with the Millennium Falcon flying around. Um, that to me, like you know, that's like model photography is good enough in some ways if you can do that with yeah, the real the, thing or and the, the, the Cloud City where they went and got land. Yeah, I mean, that and, and it feels it feels really substantial, for lack of a better yeah, word. That's where very cool. Where a lot of the stuff in episode one was just uh, cartoonish, uh, uh, cartoon. Yeah, that's the that's a good word for it, cartoonish. Um, so, but but the way that this documentary was pushing or, or trying to portray all of this was just you know allowing George Lucas's imagination to just take flight and for him to just you know again so the the phrase I kept using was create the impossible. And sure, that happens. Is that necessarily a good thing by itself? No, right? There's got to be all the stuff we talked about before, sort of a coherent story behind it and not racially insulting <laughs> actors or characters that are, uh, that are, you know, that are the figments of George Lucas's imagination. Well, but that's right. a, sorry, a whole other different story. Um, but so the other side of that, you know, beyond uh, sort of the more specifically problems with episode one was uh, uh, the more general issue of actors who are now in CGI uh, productions where they, you know, have to act to an X or have to completely imagine they're just in a big room of green and they have nothing to react to and they have to make all that up, right? So there were two very different viewpoints that are presented in this documentary about that process and how, you know, is it basically kind of good or bad, right? So Robin Williams, um, who kind of stole a show in this because he's just a funny guy, right? He was relating a conversation he had with Liam Neeson, who obviously played Kaigon Jin in the original Star Wars trilogy. And he had a hilarious sort of Liam Neeson impression, which I'm not going to try to replicate. But he says, basically, Liam Neeson was like kind of despondent. He's like, I want to give up acting because I spent all day emoting to an ex. Like there was nothing there. And I had to like, you know, act to an ex. And this felt silly, basically, is what he was saying. And that this is sort of not acting. And this is a, a bad thing. This is not an advancement in the, in the craft of movie making and acting. Whereas Samuel L. Jackson had a very different take, um, which basically said like, well, well, no, I mean, like this is, this is incredibly demanding of your creativity. This is kind of taking things to a new level. So it was interesting to sort of hear those two different uh, takes on what is essentially the same problem of, uh, of actors in highly manufactured environments 
having to do something which is very different than what they've done before. I don't know if you had a take on that, Matt. I do. I, I, but you being an actor, right? Yeah, it's I mean, not, you it's never vote to an ex. You're, 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 all you got is the flesh and blood of the It's not the super terrible. Well, I mean, most of my career is in, is in theater, and I guess my one or two film experiences, I was on location, and so we were in in sets that had a great deal of verisimilitude. Like, I once shot in a World War II-era destroyer, you know, shot some flashback scenes, World War II mm-hmm. flashback scenes uh, as a, you know, Navy officer. And it, that was, you know, that was very cool. But, um, you know, look, in the theater, it's it's a big, there's a big audience there. I mean, it, you have to fill in a whole, you know, it's called the fourth wall, you know? You have to fill in a fourth <laughs> wall around you in order to be realistically in an environment. I mean, this is not a new... This is not a new problem for the uh, for the craft of acting, you know. But it's but, a different take on it, certainly, right? I mean, well, yeah. I mean, there is an audience. There is an audience there. So even when you're alone on on an empty stage, you are you're working with someone. You know, you're not working yeah. in isolation. Yeah. Your partner is not, you know, a cold and and emotionless technology. Your part, your your scene partner. You know, if you're playing Hamlet, I guess, and doing the soliloquies, your scene partner is in some sense the audience, right? And, and sort of doing it without an audience. What, you know, one thing that's not talked about a lot in the popular discourse about the craft of acting is that uh, actors uh, like to act with other people. You know, acting is uh-huh. interacting. Uh, yeah. Or acting is reacting, I guess, is, is a, a phrase that you hear a lot. And, and um, if you are supplying imaginatively the stimulus to which you are reacting, I can see how that would get. Um, uh, I can see how that would get a little wearying uh, at a time. Uh, at uh, after a time, and you feel like you you're, you're you you don't you're not given everything that you need to make it happen, right? It's almost I don't know if what's a good analogy of this is. It's like uh, you know you're I don't know. Uh, Mark, did I lose you? Say that again, given, Mark. I, lo- I lost you for a second there. Uh, starting from where? Uh, it's almost like it's almost like you're not given everything you need, and then oh, you were yeah, like, given an example. Yeah, it's almost like you're not giving everything you need. Uh, to it's almost like it, you're not giving everything you need to get your job done. If you imagine a carpenter who is used to having a variety of uh, chisels and, and saws and, and blades to create uh, a piece of furniture and just sort of given a hacksaw and that's it. Sure. Or an actor or a, a, I don't know, an architect or a, a painter or something where it's like, uh, you know, create the painting, but, but you don't get to write any of it down. You don't get to actually paint the painting, you know, create the whole painting in your head. You know, yeah, and yeah. The painting exists in some, uh, you know, at some sort of uh, ontological level because it's a thought, you know, and the thought exists, but uh, yeah. but not, um, but not actually out in the world. And it, right. in one sense, in what sense is that uh, actually painting? Right. So going back to episode one, and or the, or not just episode one, but the the rest of the original Star Wars trilogy, um, it, it, you can't really do a direct causal link between the bad acting in the movies and the CGI, right? Obviously there were much bigger problems uh, with the, uh, the original trilogy that led to the bad acting that you saw there that had nothing to do with CGI. It was mostly with George Lucas's terrible script, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the script, I think the script was not super, it's, it's full of holes. And I think that that, uh, you know, 10 part review of episode one is, uh, is hilarious you know the one I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, and incredibly thorough in breaking down the, all the faults of the movie. But it's also, you know, I, 
I get the sense that George Lucas is not really a humanist, you know, in the way like uh, uh, like Francis Ford Coppola for all of his. I mean, and now I'm just thinking of that generation of, of filmmakers. Um, you know, I don't think he's a humanist in the same way that, mm-hmm. that Coppola is a humanist, or even in the same way that Spielberg is a humanist. Though that's kind of <laughs> I, you could make an argument. You could make an argument either way on that one, but uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 feel, so I, many- I, I, I hear Belinky like boiling in rage with yet another sort of crystal skull uh, tirade that I know he's got like a, like a million one of those stored away in him, kind of like I do with Terminator Salvation. Yeah, um, yeah. But let me let me wrap up this conversation uh, with with one last sort of interesting tidbit from the movie, um, which sort of you know it goes through the whole history of of you know the digital revolution and all this kind of stuff, and it gets to sort of the, the present day where CGI is a lot of it is, you know is taken for granted. And yet there is also this perception now that there's, quote-unquote, good CGI and bad CGI, right? And the way that they brought up this idea was through the director of Iron Man and Iron Man 2, John Favreau, who was talking about how he was a little bit wary, wary uh, or skeptical of CGI and the way that they wanted to just do away with sort of the Iron Man suit in most of the shots and just paint it on to Robert Downey Jr.'s body uh, digitally, and he was skeptical of this, and he was, you know, being extremely nitpicky about it. And he was looking at some of the shots and saying that, "Oh, this looks fake." You know, the, the reflection on the Iron Man suit in this shot looks fake, and this is bad CGI. And they told him, "John, actually, that's the real suit. That's an actual, you know, physical suit that they got there." And that was a real turning point for John Favreau, which makes says, "Like, well, you know, it, the, the technology really at a, at a base level is actually so good." Right, that even a trained professional like himself couldn't tell the difference between the real and the CGI, and so his conclusion from that was sort of was like when you see instances of bad CGI, it's less about the you know the computers or the artists who are doing the work, and more about the director and how uh, he or she uh, you know employs those tools in in the course of making a film and presenting something to an audience that they are supposed to then believe in. I think there's another implication though, which is that. Um Oh, how to couch this. In the early, ni- in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, uh, Ferdinand de Saussure, the French linguist, uh, wrote uh, a work, or I guess gave lectures that were then published as the Course in General Linguistics in French, uh, where he, he sort of um, revises the, the then current idea about how languages generate meaning. And, and the idea, more or less, that got picked up by French thought uh, and eventually blossomed into I think you can see the the kind of the seeds of post structuralism in in this. Um, the idea is that languages uh, generate meaning by reference to themselves that is to say it 's not like the language points to something out in the world. Uh, the language points to a system of meaning within the language mm-hmm. by um, by being different from other words uh, a word generates a word generates its meaning or by by being different from other meanings, a meaning generates its specific meaningness and I think okay. we 're seeing something similar with CGI, right? Where it is almost a self-contained system. The idea of looking at a real thing and saying, no, that doesn't look like good CGI. You know what? He was probably right. It probably doesn't look like good CGI. Reality actually probably looks like very bad CGI. You know? Because we, because the system of CGI is not a system with reference to uh, an independent reality. It's a system with reference to itself. And what we compare... Uh, what we compare filmed images to um, 
uh, is another filmed image, are other filmed images, right? And that right. this is this system is in some sense self-contained without reference to a reality that exists independently of it. Yes and no, because it's interesting you, you mentioned sort of the referencing to the reality part, and that's one of the things that the uh, the ILM folks were made very clear to point out, which is that um, to make what they do believable, that they do need to reference the real world and things that the audience can relate to. The specific example they used was Transformers, when they're trying all these different materials, metal, metal materials on these robots, which... Uh, you know, Optimus Prime has no real. Uh, we don't have a real reference point for Optimus Prime in our in our lives, except for the little toy. And we obviously, in the movie, they're trying to go for something beyond that, right? And they said they tried all the different things, and the quote unquote to them, it looked fake, it looked bad. And then at the end of the day, they just said like, well, let's just use uh, the, the, the metal bodies of cars and just use that as the texture and our model for how to make the Transformers. And they said that, that after that, it, was, it just clicked, and right then it, it looks, you know, and then that's when we found that it looked. It looked appropriate. It looked believable. Whether Transformers, you know, can be anything "quote unquote" believable is a whole other ball of wax. And you know, Michael Bay's whole you know, technique of ridiculous filmmaking. Uh, we could fill podcasts upon podcasts about yeah, that. But the, the, the movie is visual gibberish. I mean, it's like a, it's like a baby saying "goo goo gaga" for two hours. Sure. Yeah. Just in terms of just how the shots are composed and that sort of thing. But that's again not the fault of the CGI artist. It's more you know if you want to blame anyone, blame Michael Bay. Sure. Right. But but going back to what we were talking about earlier, right? So they are still yeah. they, it's they funny, are still like ILM should have a sign over the door that says like "Don't blame us, we just work here." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like like the uh, you know like the the a union carpenter of sorts, <laughs> right? Or, or or a plumber for the Richard Geary building where the whole thing leaks, right? Um, but uh, but uh, you know going back to what you said earlier, sort of you know what is CGI is in a system in itself. It, that is by and large true, but we still, I, I think, as an audience, do want to uh, connect those to the objects we see in our everyday life, and and we, you know, we mentally make those connections about how they react to light, how they shine, how they or how they don't shine, and how they react when they're scratched and that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, so, okay. yeah, that's that's basically the you know in, in 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 a nutshell what this island documentary is about. If you have encore. You should definitely check it out. It's uh, it's coming up in in November. Um, I'd actually be interested to uh, you know go back and see some of the um, you know the major sort of special effects movies that they talked about, like Jurassic Park and 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 and, and Terminator Two, and view it through this lens and compare it. You know, do real A B sort of between that and like Transformers or Avatar, and see how much the craft has advanced or has not advanced over the last 15, 20 years or so in, in this new digital era. Thanks, Mark. Uh, We will be right back with uh, more Overthinking a Podcast after this exciting musical bumper. And we're back, back from Comic-Con, though Mark wasn't actually at Comic-Con. We recorded it uh, earlier this this weekend. Uh, Well, it sounded like he was. I was definitely fascinated. That is uh, some really cool stuff that he was saying about that thing that he went to. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was great. Way to way did, to fake. Did he you. say? Did he? Did he? Did he go to that star? That Starcraft tournament that I told him to go to because he's Korean, so that he could uh, play in the Starcraft tournament. Wait, he's Korean? Uh, yes, he did. <laughs> he did go to the okay. Starcraft tournament, and there's a there's at least one picture of it uh, on the um, photo post that dropped earlier this weekend. Excellent, uh, excellent, excellent. On overthinkingit.com. But uh, cool. but no, we're back. Uh, earlier, before we went to the interview, we were talking about designed spaces, and mm-hmm. um, I think that that Pete in in our our pre-show discussion, Pete brought up the fact that it's it's Columbus Day, and that Columbus yep. Day is a kind of holiday uh, that um, is is kind of disappearing. 
from yeah. uh, from the I don't know from the American consciousness. Uh, it's a it's a public it's a public holiday, and and we're moving towards in a way designed holidays, and and the holidays yeah. are designed in in. Two ways, two main ways that I can think of. One is um, uh, commercial holidays like Valentine's Day, where it's kind of a marketing thing, and then an, yeah. an, another is kind of awareness holidays. And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And uh, Columbus Day doesn't merit recognition as an awareness holiday for a bunch of interesting w- reasons. But Pete, why don't you yeah. say something about what you were thinking of when you were talking about uh, when you were initially talking about Columbus Day and, and why you wanted to talk about it uh, on this podcast? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it does sort of fit with what I was talking to before because a holiday is is one of the sort of fundamental ways that people design time, right? And sort of assign time. Like they take you know holiday meaning holy day, right? You're you're taking a, a period of time uh, and you're you're putting some sort of purpose on it, right? Um, now, the, the trick with Columbus Day, of course, is that Columbus Day is really, like, it, it's a political holiday. It's like an old-timey political holiday from the era where party politics was different than it is today and where you could sort of count on these blocks of people to have buy-in into your political system without having to always sort of have an ideological point that you were going to make with them, right? So, so there's a whole g- generation of holidays that are like this that are not really ideologically active uh, in terms of being design spaces but are, are kind of like political bo- to throw, right? I'd compare them to sort of the the kind of semi-mythical turkey that the family that lives in the machine political, uh, you know, that the, the lives in the neighborhood that has a political machine gets from its local politician, right? It's like a sign of mutual respect. Sure. And so Columbus Day, as a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of, is the holiday that Italians get. Right, like because Columbus was Italian and he went to Spain, but he was Italian himself. Uh, and because so many of the other people who are prominent Italian heroes from their uh, their holidays are religious, and this is a secular holiday, uh, that then you know they would pick Columbus. You can't very well pick Galileo because um, he's sort of this anti-Catholic and anti-religious symbol. Where, whereas some you know somebody that people can get behind, but it would be kind of awkward for a, an Italian neighborhood to celebrate Galileo Day because like the church is so important in putting together events in Italian neighborhoods, uh, and they kind of makes them look bad. But no, but uh, I was definitely thinking like like. Think about this generation of holidays, right? You've got Columbus Day. You've got St. Patrick's Day. I, I sort of lump in uh, like the sort of evolution of Cinco de Mayo in this, but not really. Um, Martin Luther King Day, President's Day, Labor Day, Memorial Day. They're all put out there as, as kind of concessions to the importance of particular interests in our national fabric, right? The, the, and I apologize – not I don't apologize to our friends overseas, but I'll try to frame it in such a way that like they can understand it as well. Like in America, we have this very devolved political system where you have people who are thousands of miles away from each other and, uh, and, and they are like trying to be gathered together into political coalitions. And one of the ways in which a political coalition can recognize a group within it that is an important contributor is – to use its influence in the federal government to make it give it a holiday, right? So veterans get Memorial Day and unions get Labor Day. And, um, and then, you know, there's that argument over MLK Day versus Robert E. Lee Day, which is celebrated in some places. Um, and Martin Luther King Day, of course, being the holiday for African-Americans and that kind of racial, racial tolerance. But the thing that is notable about all these holidays is that they are pretty much just days off. Right? They're days off or they're celebration days. Now, that in and of itself is important. I think a lot of people today are confused by it because it's like, well, it's not really a holiday. It doesn't really mean anything. We have this idea that a holiday has to mean something. Um, sure. Whereas, I, I mean, and I, I kind of disagree with that. It's like getting off from work is one of the highest, like, 
uh, acknowledgments of the significance of a thing that you can give it, sure. right? It's like uh, like not having to work and getting to barbecue. Like that shows a certain amount of respect to the group that you're talking about. Now, Columbus Day is the holiday that is like really on the cusp because it's a bank holiday, right? And it's a it's a holiday for certain industries, but it's been pra- it's been observed less and less by people. The Italians don't want it to go away. And I mean, like, here in the Boston, we got the North End. Like, they're celebrating it like crazy. Like, not just the Italians, like, a group of demographic people who are descended, but, like, people who are interest groups who are in, involved with, you know, Italian-American politics. Like, they don't want it to go away because it's their holiday. But everybody's got to feel a little bit awkward because Columbus is not a very fashionable figure right now. Uh, and it is a little bit awkward because of the whole kind of the history of the country and, and the fact that there's all these people who, because of white people coming over here, lost their homes and livelihoods. And arms. Um, and, yeah, and, and so it's. And lives in a lot of cases. Yeah. Now, it is kind of foolish to sort of celebrate, to even live here, if you're, you can't tolerate the idea that this is an, a nation that has a history of, of extirpating the people who lived here previously. Like, you sort of have to assimilate that into your, into your moral being as kind of like an original sin of this country, right? Because they're not, because like Native Americans and, and slavery and like all of these things that are really terrible that are part of the country, like, you can't really live here without having at least a little bit of the blood on your hands from those things, no matter who you are, even if you are like, an indigenous person or whatnot like like the civilization is built on these sins now that doesn't mean we have to celebrate it in a holiday but it does mean that like kind of expunging it from the public record is not really an option um but i think to come around all the way around and i've really ranted for a while and really what i wanted to talk about here is that like the there is i feel like there is a, a sort of striving right now that we may see break forward in like the coming years maybe the coming decade or so to like Bring about this new generation of holidays that are more actively designed spaces in the context of how design works. They don't just fulfill the function uh, politically of recognizing a particular group, um, but they they commemorate something in a way that people today in our culture find relevant in commemoration. So, so the big thing for me right now, thinking about this, is this month is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, right? Uh, and this is a great example because there is a huge amount of stuff that happens on Breast Cancer Awareness Month. All these walks and runs and ad campaigns. Like, it's, it's pretty much a religious holiday. Like, 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 I mean, yes, there is a material goal that you're pursuing, but people, like, they get really into the breast cancer thing. And it's, like, something that they really care about. And it's something that kind of shapes their life for this month. People who have family and friends are involved in it. And it's, you know, much as... In past generations, you might commemorate a military victory over an oppressor. In the absence of that kind of experience, a a victory over cancer or a battle with cancer kind of takes its place, right? And so we have these holiday spaces like Breast Cancer Awareness Month, like Black History Month, like like Cinco de Mayo now, or like uh, as like a drinking holiday, right? Um, where like there's sort of an active participation in what you're doing. The holiday engages you. It doesn't just give you a free day to do whatever you want. It like prescribes for you a specific sort of behavior that helps you acknowledge the holiday right which in and a it, way is um, a return to the religious model right where where yeah. ho- holy days in the catholic church anyway uh, have specific observance observances and devotions that you're supposed to perform yeah exactly exactly and i think that that um one of the things and to bring this sort of back to pop culture um i think that one of the things that re- i really think about with these older holidays is a lot of the old school holidays are built around these heroes that exist historically and we have this comfort or at least that we had this comfort with these historical heroes that we were willing to overlook the things about them that were bad or unacceptable to our contemporary sensibilities uh, because they were important or influential or represented an important political group or just because in that kind of discourse we didn't really consider 
uh, these sorts of things, right? Like, so the, there's uh, Thomas Jefferson, but there's a fictionalized Thomas Jefferson who didn't do anything wrong and just wrote like a couple of documents, and that was his whole life, right? Whereas our life is a long time, and people do good and bad things, and some of them very good, and some of them very bad. So it's like, well, you pretty much have to discount from the history of the country anybody who ever had a slave because that's such a horrible thing by today's standards and all that other stuff. So you either get involved in this relativism or you start making excuses. The end of it is that nowadays it seems like the heroes that we really like worship are increasingly fictional. Like straight up fictional, not even like fictionalized real heroes, like not even like Johnny Appleseed quality tall tale heroes or John Henry style heroes where there's this sort of placement of these people in the locus that we live in and like the world that we live in. And then they had a time and a place that they actually existed. But it's like how many kids who might have previously looked up to somebody like George Washington now look up to Luke Skywalker? You know what I mean? Or I guess Anakin, because nobody knows Luke Skywalker anymore because of the new movies and all that stuff. Um, like, you know what I mean? Like, the pop culture doesn't have this relationship with the history as much as it as I think even it did when I was a kid, uh, just sort of looking around. Does that make sense to you? Um, yeah. Oh, I, I think you're right. And I mean, I think yeah. – um, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting the way in which uh, interest groups uh, play into this as well. Right. Yeah. There's there's a there's a constant practice, I guess, of Congress declaring things national holidays. You know. Yeah. Uh, oh, the one that happened over the summer that I was aware of was National Dance Day, which was oh, for, for yeah. health and fitness and dance for health and fitness. And was, <laughs> so it was like Zumba. It was like Zumba Day. Day. Promoted heavy, <laughs> heavily on so you think you can dance the the uh-huh. reality show the the yeah. dance competition game show. Um, but, uh, you know, another one, uh, you talk about Cinco de Mayo, and I mean, uh, my uh, not being um, Hispanic, my, uh, my observance of Cinco de Mayo is to go to a Mexican bar and drink a lot, yeah. right? Well, Cinco, Cinco de Mayo isn't really a Latino holiday. <laughs> I mean, like, it is, but it's not, like, celebrated in Mexico. It's like St. Patrick's Day. It's, like, not the same holiday in the place where it's actually from as it is in, with us because we turn it into a party day. You know what I mean? Sure. Because um, Cinco de Mayo celebrates a a sort of minor victory in an ultimately failed war, right? So it's like the Mexicans won one battle against the French and then their country was conquered by the French. Yeah. And, and so they're more interested in like Mexican Independence Day, which is a different day. Um, but in the United States, like this is the day we choose for the drinking. Same thing with St. Patrick's Day. It's a religious holiday in Ireland, but here we use a party time. Anyway, I interrupted you. Well, it's um, a religious, I mean, it's a religious holiday here too, if that's, I mean, if that's the way you swing, you know? I suppose. I don't know. I mean, not, not that there's anything wrong with that. But uh, <laughs> he, drove the, he drove the snakes out of Ireland. P. What do you, that, what do you want? You know. What do I? What do I? I want the freaking snakes back. How am I supposed <laughs> to get a biker gang together? No, I don't want the snakes back. I mean, I'm. Are you? I'm mostly Irish. Are you? Are you Irish at all? No, not at all. You're, actually, you're English, right? You're like the the oppressor. You're the callous oppressor. Uh, we think so. Uh, <laughs> uh, Scotish, actually. It's it's. Oh well, then never mind. Then. It's okay. kind of unclear. It, but uh, we, think that that's, we think that there's some uh, some Scots in that uh, in that old European mutt. Uh, yeah, that is. My but I think the, the main the main long and the short of it is that nowadays there has to be something that you do because just celebrating a person like we're not willing to have Luke Skywalker Day. Right. Well, like we're not will- we're not willing to have like like Blake Lively like Gossip Girl Day. We'd have Blake Lively Day, but like we're not. I mean, it might be fun to celebrate these things. I mean, like, and there's these conventions like Comic Con where people go and they have holidays based around their sort of fictional, uh, their their sort of fictional adorations. But like, we're not going to have like you know. Um, uh, I guess what like uh, like uh, Peter Griffin Day or Bart Simpson Day. Like like Harry, even Harry though Potter the. Day. 
Harry Potter Day. I mean, there could be a Harry Potter Day, and it would be a holiday, but the government wouldn't be able to acknowledge it because they're in in the sort of history of our holidays is interwoven this relationship between fictionalized heroism and like government scheduling and intervention. Right, And it's like the government is going to endorse the things that the people worship. They're not going to endorse the religions in America as much, like a little bit, like some, but like what they're really going to endorse is like these pseudo-myths. Right, like like uh, George Washington cutting down the cherry tree, like that's what the government is is wanting to promote. Um, but nowadays, you know, with our saturation, with our with fictions and the availability of media and like the the changes in pop culture, I mean, even our you know pop stars, we don't hear their real voices anymore, right? And it's like we we have to a degree assimilated these things, and we do live with them, and we can carp about them, and we can complain about them, but um, they are. I think we more by and large we're okay with it. You know, like some people are like, oh, rap isn't singing. But like I think most of us have gotten past that point at this point. Yeah, like, well, like, I agree that there's an artistry to it in its in its own right, even though it is not necessarily yeah. super akin. But, um, you know, uh, autotune isn't singing. But we can we can yeah. identify sort of strong, quote unquote, strong uses of autotune that use the technology in a way that is artistically significant, uh, even yeah. if it, you know, even if it is different from um, from what came before. Yeah. I mean, but I think the main point that I'm trying to make is that these protestations feel like protests because they have become the reality as we see it and feel it of how, how we, you know, interact with the culture. Like, it feels like you're being a rebel to say that you hate autotune. In order for it to feel rebellious to say that, like, autotune needs to have won to an extent. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, if autotune is just, like, nobody, when Roger Troutman and Zap were going around, is like, you know, autotune isn't music. Because it's like, who cares? It's just like one band. It's like one funk band, right. you know. And like nobody cares. Nobody cares enough to to hate it or love it. Um, so I guess I mean I've been. I, I, again, I'm ranting a lot because there aren't a lot of other people on the podcast. So <laughs> so it's like I gotta fill a space. And, um, if I, and, we, and if I were ranting, I'd just stutter a lot. The um... <laughs> No, yeah. but I think the main thing is that like the hol- holidays are changing and like holidays are taking on a different role. And a big part of why this is true is that we have deconstructed our political heroes and refabricated them into our fictional heroes and made the fictional heroes our political heroes. You know, it's like it's sort of like you can't have a better example is you can't have Mulan Day. I mean, Mulan is based on a sort of semi-historical figure, sure. but like, but like, she is a political historical hero, Mulan, right? Like the then and like, we can't have a Mulan day. It would not. It does not exist in that kind of reality. Uh, and as such, like that would be what would replace Columbus Day. It would be like a Pocahontas Day, like a Sacagawea. Yeah, Pocahontas Day is what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even though Pocahontas is, is historical, like, she's been so fictionalized at this point. And I can go back to my whole Avatar nonsense about that. And just, like, I would feel really uncomfortable celebrating. Although, honestly, she's probably one of the ones that you could really get away with if you wanted to. But people wouldn't like it because it's, like, all she does is sleep with a white dude. And that's, like, not particularly a great achievement for an entire people to be acknowledged with. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's – um, at any rate – you know, but yeah, I mean, remember I... in the in the time we went to college, and there was always a a fight between the uh, the Italians and the Irish communities uh, in in the town over whose parade was going to be bigger, Columbus Day or St. Patrick's Day, you know, and yeah. who who got permits to you yeah. know who could march the thing by the reviewing stand at City Hall or something like yeah. that. So, oh, well, I was always scared by the 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 fight that came out of the Indigenous Peoples Day people because they got so angry, and like there would be like chalk outlines on the ground and like like death threats. Uh, written in shock, like about the revenge that's going to come down, and like you know, like uh, Custer died for your sins was one of my favorite uh, <laughs> examples, and it was just like because I mean, yeah, this was a huge 
the huge thing that happened. I mean, Columbus didn't do it all himself, but, um, but like, yeah, that, that it's like, but it's like, man, that used to scare me. Like if they really wanted me on board with indigenous people's day, they really should have, uh, maybe not been as mean and scary, but, um, but yeah, like it was a big deal. And yeah, in, in New Haven, um, you know, the, the, and it's also, there's a great episode of Sopranos about this. Right. Where they, yeah. It's, a- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, maybe it's not the greatest episode of The Sopranos ever, but it's well, it's a really great episode of television about Columbus Day, and there aren't a lot of great <laughs> episodes of television about Columbus Day. So, um, but I mean, the country was almost called Columbia. You know, it was one of the potential names that was kicked around. I think sure, uh, and it was often referred to it. If you look at old political cartoons from the 1800s and even the 1900s, like we are often uh, America is often represented as as a sort of goddess called Columbia because uh, it refers to you know, I mean, America. All it is is a different Italian dude. Um, you know, America. <laughs> like, really, I mean, you could call it America Day. Columbus Day could become America Day, and it's like, by the way, like, we're named after an Italian. Like, yeah, did you realize that? Right. Uh, <laughs> Vespucci um, Day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, well, and that's you, a whole, yeah. Well, and they, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I wanted to ask you a question, Pete. Does, yeah. Where does a, where does a um, just an entirely marketed holiday like Valentine's Day fit into your schema uh, of kind of new fictionalized holidays? Uh, also, I, are you yeah. saying that, that breast cancer is fictional? No, I'm not saying that breast cancer is fictional, but I, I do think that there is a mythology around it. Uh, and I, and I do, cause I do think that breast cancer awareness day isn't just about breast cancer and breast cancer awareness month is not just about breast cancer. It's a, it's a, it's a commemoration of the struggles that women have among themselves, right? Like independently of men, like that breast dang- cancer. That, wait, that was a dangling modifier. Where do you mean among themselves? Uh, it is a commemoration among themselves of the struggles that women have, or it is a commemoration of the struggles among themselves that women have. Uh, the former. It's I like see. the so the, the it's the thing. It's breast cancer is something. Of course, there's a small percentage of people who get breast cancer who are men. Like that happens, but that's not. But again, that's not part of the breast cancer like thing, right? Like yes, like and I, of course, I don't want to be callous in saying these things. First of all, because obviously this stuff is is very important and it does kill people. And like this is something that is tremendously important in people's lives but i do think that there is an angle especially with the pink that's worn like that the big symbol of the pink and the reason that breast cancer is like a sticky disease um and i am using the sort of malcolm gladwell term right is like it's a, it's a it's a cause that really gets in people's minds and like and like sticks with them and like has uh, sort of social cachet and i think one of the big reasons that it's there is because it's like something that women have specifically um and, and it talks about issues with women's health right and there's this this perception and reality uh that women don't get health care under the traditional system of this same sort of dedicated quality as men do uh because like they're they have to go through the whole sort of gynecological thing which is kind of it kind of like like having a gynecologist is kind of being ghettoized to an extent because it's sure. like you yeah a, a man has a general practitioner doctor but a woman if you need to go see a GP yeah, they yeah, would sure has to go to a special lady doctor yeah 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 because yeah, oh because regular medicine oh man no you have to go to a lady doctor right and it has like, to I mean it has to do with the idea of like male physiology being taken as normative and women's you know being kind of uh, aber- aberrant in some way and yeah see sure. that that is that is put so well like I, I that was what I was trying to say is that like there's this this trying to refute this idea. Idea that 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 female physiology is aberrant or wrong or or like not normal, and I think that that what breast cancer awareness is about is about you know sort of the female body as a health object as opposed to a sex object, right? As like as, as something that deserves to be to be treated and valued uh, for the sort of support of life and of well, like sure, sort these of valued, people's lives, valued yeah. intrinsically. 
Yeah. And it also, I think breast cancer is an ironic disease because of the sort of like sexualization of the breast and the fact that it actually means life or death to the person who has it, as opposed to the sort of like fairly trivial, trivializing quality that, that cleavage has on, on the sort of uh, the body of women. So in all these things that we're talking about, like we're really talking about a pop culture phenomenon here. Like, like, like we're not just talking about a disease or a, a fight for, or a fight for a cure for a disease. And we're not just talking about like a public relations campaign well, we're to talking raise about money a political a political situation that is historically yeah. determined uh you know what i mean and it's not uh, uh has meaning in relation to a lot of other uh political realities uh, and yeah 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 realities. i mean i think that that um one of my i think you probably took a class too but one of my favorite theatrical professors in college used to talk about how standing on stage and delivering a line is like a political act Right, and I think that that uh, and this is what what Deb Margolin, the prize-winning playwright, used to to say to us is that like no matter what it is that you're saying, just like being a performer uh, is a political act. And I think that we need to consider this in pop culture that like you know making a movie is a political act, being a char- making a fictional character is a political act. There is not a division between things that are political and things that are pop cultural. Um, you know, comedy, drama, it's all part of the relation of people, the exchange of power, the way we frame ourselves. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it and that you have to be a jerk about it all the time. You know, like it doesn't necessarily mean that you should like get totally cynical about the things that you love. Sure, um, and it also I mean it also doesn't mean yeah, uh, uh, I th- I think we should be I think we should define what we mean by political here. You know, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Because very often it seems like um uh, what you're talking about is is political in the sense of uh pertaining to a to a relation of power, right? Yes, exactly. And they're like and not ju- and and politics I think as distinct from um uh, what would politics be distinct from? I guess I mean it's funny because you think of the Clausewitz like war is politics by other means, right? So sure. it's like so, so like I think we often use politics to refer to like sort of non like physical violence ways of exchanging power. Sure, as um, politics. They uh, um. yeah, it's funny. Like um, because it seems like. It- Especially with with entertainment products now, and it's uh, it's telling that I call them products. Yeah, you yeah. know. And Mark, and it's funny. It's telling also that that Mark in the interview talks about consuming pop culture and the rate at which you consume uh, yeah. popular culture. Um, we tend to couch these these kind of uh, these political situations in economic terms rather yeah. than um, rather than in civic terms. So I guess, yeah. I guess the distinction that I was trying to get us to make was to distinguish between. Uh, uh, Politics and civics, you know, um, uh, which is to say the distinction between um, us as actors in a system of power and us as actors in a bureaucracy designed to, you know, designed to kind of make a uh, nation go. Yeah, yeah. Like there's this idea that politics is elections. And that's what, yeah, by civics, it means like getting appointed to boards or, or, yeah, or, or campaigning yeah. or things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas really, um, you know, politics can be a broader term applying to any sort of exercise of power. And that the, the sort of imaginings that we have and the way that we communicate back and forth with each other through characters and through plots and stories. And it's all part of it. It all frames a power dialogue. Right. Um, and that is that is, uh, you know, trialogue, quintuple amog or whatever. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, I, and, I, and the reason and just sort of to, to bring it back around. Is that like holidays are one of the most important pieces of that vocabulary, right? Sure, it, it sure, is sure, like, sure. What you choose to take off take off work for. It's funny in Britain they call it February bank holiday, March bank holiday. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know yeah. I mean? 
because they're very cognizant of the power that's in a holiday, and I don't think the government wants to give that power up to a concern like uh, like you know Columbus or like uh, you know any of those other stuff. It's definitely like like it, the institutions retain the influence. Uh, you know, it's sort of like the government doesn't let go of the BBC either. Like, like they, they understand like in a, in a parliamentary democracy, I think that you have a great deal of experience with abstract notions of power because so much is negotiation. Right. And, and it's not just because your government has to retain in coalition and cooperate or else it collapses. Unlike in the American system where we have these sort of like institutionalized pluralism and, and stuff and, and the electoral college to make sure that direct democracy doesn't fall upon itself and collapse. Whereas in parliamentary democracies, you have to build coalition governments. Uh, in you know, America, we have this president and, and these other institutions and the two party system. That kind of prevents uh, that kind of collapse, but also like makes us think that there's more of a separation between civics and politics than there really is. Uh, and, and so, so yeah, so I think that when we're talking about holidays like Columbus Day, um, you're seeing a divergence in what Columbus Day is. Columbus Day is a fusion of a, a holiday for a hero, a holiday for an interest group, right, and then a civic holiday for a public, a sort of public interest, sure. uh, like a historical public interest holiday. So now, like we you know the, the sort of interest Veterans group Day, holidays. Veterans Day is a holiday for uh, for an interest group and for a, a civic. Thing as well, exactly. Like they'll have parades and marches, and the government and also, is. Shocked. I mean, it's a, it also it also is a holiday for a hero, but the hero is conveniently non-specific. Yeah, I think the veteran is definitely an interesting character to talk about. Like, who is the veteran, and what does it mean, and how much has it changed? Yeah, exactly. I think there are a lot like of, the I mean, veteran. Of- the veteran is homeless, you know, but the veteran is also like conservative, and like the veteran is you know is like a somebody who has served his country in a humble way. Like, yeah, like there's a whole bunch of myths associated with the veteran, whoever that person is. But if I say veteran, a whole bunch of things come up in your mind, um, and it's not just treating dogs who have um, scabies or whatever. <laughs> Oh, but, that's the veterinarian. But, ooh, oops. Um, so. <laughs> we could, yeah, uh, right, exactly. And it's, it's funny that these things that come up into your mind are not really cohesive. You know, a lot of them yeah. are internally contradictory. Yeah, 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 definitely. It's interesting to me and, anyway. Oh, I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why, like, I was talking to a physicist this weekend. Oh, by the way, like, a physicist who has an awesome, awesome side project called Ninja Sex Party that I entirely recommend. (laughs) They do music. They're an amazing band, and you should check out their YouTube channel because their videos are hilarious. I think they're playing in Toronto in a couple weeks. People got to check that out if they get a chance. But um, I was talking to a physicist about this because I've been reading a lot of – I've been reading Brian Greene's books, uh, a Brian Greene book on physics called Fabric of the Cosmos. And and if we're going to celebrate Galileo Day uh, tomorrow. Um, just this notion that there are certain ways of thinking that are useful or not useful in determining things through science, right? And so we often set up this this dichotomy where it's like science versus religion, right? Which is like, you know, science knows certain things and has theories, but like religion knows things by different means. I think there's a more meaningful thing to say discursively about like thinking about the world scientifically, which is that like there, there are limitations on what science can tell us because of the, the way that we observe things through our senses and the way that science experiments with things. And in a scientific worldview, you see that those are the things that are important, right? And, and, and other sources of information, um, if you were to have them, must be treated skeptically because things that are non-falsifiable shouldn't be considered. And that's important if what you're trying to accomplish is practical and has something to do with explaining something. But if you're talking about – and so the, those things like that, op, things that operate through logic, for example. Like in order to prove something through logic, it has to admit to a logical system, which means it needs to be falsifiable, so it has to obey, obey the exclusion principle, which is really by what I mean it can't be A and not A at the same time. 
time. And what I'm coming around to this is that like things that are mutually exclusive but coexist, there are semiotics for that, and there are ways of meaning that entertain that and make that reality meaningful. So we should not be saying, well, that's not logical, therefore it doesn't matter, or that's not logical, therefore it's irrelevant. No, no, no like, absolutely not. I think that, that yeah. we, need to, we all need to get hip to the idea of, let's call it fractional truth values. Yes, yes, yes. And even that, even the idea of it being fractional as it being part of a whole, like the whole is more than 100%. But yeah, definitely. It's like, um, it's, it's definitely like, like that's something that I think you and I, as people who've studied poetry, know pretty intimately. But a lot of people. Well, yeah. uh, also, don't- you and I, as people who have studied poetry at, a, at an uh, institution renowned for uh, being a center of the new criticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This idea that there are multiple meanings that it coexist and, and any sort of uh, way of talking about things. And, and, that, and that, some are, things, yeah. that some things are, are inherently ambiguous uh, in yeah. seven particular ways. <laughs> true, true, true. But like, like Columbus Day, like it is not just a holiday. It's not a question of whether Columbus is good or bad, right? Columbus is both the hero and the villain at the same time. Sure. Like he is both the Italian symbol and the sort of symbol of colonialism at the same time. And it's not like a mix. It's not like he's 20% this and 30% that. Like at any given moment, these different notions of it can pop into your head and exist for you. And, and like I think that, that that's, you know, another, I mean, I've talked about Anakin Skywalker a couple of times because I think like he's a great example of a fictional character, and I mean Darth Vader here, a fictional character who's taken on almost a historical uh, quality in our culture, sure. right? Because uh, he's, I mean, I feel like there are a lot of people who would celebrate Darth Vader Day if we were to celebrate it. Um, yeah, and, 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 and it's like Comic-Con. Yeah, exactly. And Darth Vader is both like the good Darth Vader and the bad Darth Vader, and he's not half and half. Uh, and I mean, I think that that you can play the ex- you can apply the exclusion principle to things that have multiple truth uh, fractional truth values as a political tool. Because you can be like, well, because Darth Vader killed all those Jedi, he is a bad person, and you should not celebrate Darth Vader Day, right? And it's like, well, I don't celebrate Darth Vader Day. Because he killed all those people. Like, I celebrate Darth Vader Day because he redeemed himself by throwing the Emperor down the reactor shaft. You know, and it's like, well, I celebrate Darth Vader Day because I think about how he put balance to the Force and he was this great guy, and also because he's somebody that we can all get behind. Like, all of these things, if we were to have a Darth Vader Day holiday, which is really kind of what Columbus Day is, um, they would all be truths in themselves. Um, we're not talking about a correspondence theory of truth here because we're not talking about somebody who actually existed. Uh, and I don't think, and I think it's optimistic to think of Columbus as somebody who actively actually existed in the way that we think about him. Like Columbus, the man, did not have like nearly the scope in his life that we attribute to him. Like he died penniless. You know, like he was involved in a lot of political backstabbing and like a lot of stuff that happened wasn't necessarily him. But that doesn't make an excuse. Again, here I am trying to. That doesn't like don't exclude that. It's not A and not A. You know, that's another reason why all the Ayn Rand stuff is nonsense, right? It's because because there's that. <laughs> Because I because objectivism and I rant or anything. I'm sorry. I should wrap this up fairly soon. No, but like, no, no, no. no. T- talk about objectivism. Yeah. But yeah, but objectivism uh, uh, it has this f- this seminal uh, philosophical notion that like a cannot like it uses the exclusion principle, right? Like a is a, right? Um, and like a cannot. Can, I don't know how, to, how they formulate it exactly, but it's like if something is so, then it can't not be so. Um, and which thus, is, yeah, like, of course, which is crap. Which is crap, and like, and it's really hard to teach people that it's that that because people 
people sort of who who sort of don't accept the exclusion principle to start out with on some level sure. often just fail to do so out of laziness. Who is it? And it's I like, oh, maybe they're both true. I don't care. But there's a way you can break through and you can get to a point where you can believe that, yes, like something can be something and a contradictory also something all at the same time. And it's all meaningful and it's all important. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, so uh, let's wrap. Let's wrap there. I have a feeling that that our volume of uh, our volume of comment is going to be higher on this episode because we've touched on a lot of sort of poli- politically tricky uh, tricky areas and we've done it without i not to toot our own horn but we've done it without a ton of piety about uh, that usually oh yeah of, yeah you know, i mean i i'm basically saying like whatever i, I kind of want to offend people you know how i always say if people aren't yelling at you on the internet you're doing it wrong so like i'm putting this stuff out there please i mean you i'm not afraid like if you don't like me like that's fine i, I want to like you but um if, if you know if you want to say something strong uh, strongly phrased about any of the things that we've said like go for it what i want to hear is what holiday do you think that we should should, should celebrate like where do you think like the readership, like where do you think the culture exists in terms of the days that we should take off or like what should we should do during them? Like, should we have a fundraiser walk in every holiday, right? Or should we not? Like, should we feel like we have to do something? Do you feel like a holiday that doesn't serve a purpose is bad in some way? Uh, and, and, so, and things like that, you know, like how, what does having fun have to do with, with things that we ought to commemorate? Like that to, one a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Just to pour some gasoline on the fire. Let me say, uh, if you, if you have a holiday that you think we shouldn't commemorate, go ahead and put that yeah. in the, uh, I mean, prepare for a flame war, but go ahead and put that in the comments yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as well. Uh, you can reply to the comment thread on the show notes for this uh, for this episode. Uh, you can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or you can call the voicemail or text the voicemail at 203-285-6401. 203-285-6401. Uh, it remains only to thank Pete for holding down the fort with me. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I, 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 you know that I love to talk and and uh, hear the sound of my own voice. So this well, has been you know a special. What, Pete, a lot, a lot of people uh, all over the country and the world enjoy hearing the sound of your voice over uh, <laughs> as well. Less, less, we, we... Uh, less so mine, but it's my freaking show. Damn it. We we need to use this one, this particular podcast, as kind of a Darmok and Jalada Tanagra reference <laughs> at some point in the future. Like, this is a mythological moment. Like, should we have a holiday based on this podcast? The right. day when Rather and Fenzel stood alone against the darkness with only a pre recorded segment from Mark Lee to protect themselves. <laughs> from, yeah, from right from the oblivion of silence. Exactly, exactly. Um, well, that's, uh, that's excellent. So it, it remains now only for me to tell you to come visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Today is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes say Paul. You know, I was thinking about that. It, it would be so great if Columbus Day were also the Feast of St. Crispian. That would be pretty great. It would also be awesome if it were uh, um, the birthday of Buddy Lembeck. I don't know, the Charles in Charge guy. Because <laughs> then you'd be like, hey, you know it's also Buddy Lembeck's birthday? And people are like, I didn't know. And like, yeah. And it's like, hey, you, want, you guys want to drink? It's like, yeah, sure. You're pretty cool. Hang out with us. I'm like, yeah. Hey, let's all go to Mexico. Yeah. Things happen. Holidays are about making things happen. They're also about sleeping. I'm going to sleep so long tomorrow. <laughs> then will he strip his sleeves and show his car scars and say, these wounds I had on Lembeck Day. <laughs>
<laughs> he who sheds his blood with me today shall be my lambeck. <laughs> be he ne'er so vile, this day shall lambeck his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed will think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap. Huh? Huh? Little normative moment there. Hold their manhoods cheap while Zenny speaks that fought with us upon the Lembeck Day.